This is Outside In, and I'm Charles Travail. Today, I'm delighted that I have Arvind Krishna, who's the chairman and CEO of IBM on Outside In. Arvind, very nice to see you, and thank you so much for joining us today. Charles, it's a pleasure to be here and with your audience here on Outside In. Arvind, you became CEO of IBM. You were announced, I believe, in January 2020, and you became the CEO April 2020. I probably don't need to remind my audience what was happening then, but we heard about COVID and it was growing into a pandemic and the world was reacting. How did it feel to become the CEO of IBM at that moment? So Charles, in hindsight, we look uh, rather myopic as a human race. I remember being in Davos the week before I was announced, then I was announced, and there was no real talk of COVID. If you look and scrub with hindsight, there were some murmurs of something happening in Wuhan. It was there. But despite that, no talk. Uh, you could say that we were blind and deaf to it. There were some people crying out. I remember a question being asked in the middle of February and various, I'll say, government and scientific authorities kind of denied it could happen. Oh, yeah, something's happening out there in the Far East. It won't come this way. Somewhere around the third week of February, I remember some of my pharmaceutical colleagues, you could see from their eyes that they were worried. And I said, hang on, I'm not smart enough to know this, but if these people are worried, there's something happening. I remember asking one of them about making a trip to Japan, and their advice to me was, if at all possible, we would urge you not to go. And I said, okay, that's pretty strong language from the community I'm used to, and we tend to take all kinds of risks. We'll go anywhere if it's even a slight business advantage. So then you fast forward to April. By now we are a month in, it's full blown. We are worrying about the safety of our employees. How do we keep them safe, but productive? And the reason I say but productive is because if they're not productive, and if you don't have revenue and profits, you're not going to be able to sustain employment. So you actually have to do both. You have to keep them safe. They have to work from home. As a technologist, I'll say that was the easier part. But now how do we convince all our clients to let us keep doing work for them remotely? And I'm glad to say we got through that. So by early April, we were comfortable that we could do that for months, maybe years, but we weren't thinking three years plus at that time. It then shifted to the business side. If there is going to be a downturn in GDP and hence in revenues, how are you going to make sure that you're still able to survive and thrive as a company? And that became the next couple of months. By June, we clearly got to the stage where we said, okay, this is here for some time. This could be months, it could be years. What's the culture change? How do you worry about things? How do you have work from home? How do you make people feel included? How are you going to hire in this environment? And you really had to come up. We did kind of did a large social experiment. If some politician or labor leader had said, do such an experiment, I think the whole world would have said, no way, you're crazy. But we did a large social experiment. And I think in the end, we'll come out better. Because the way of working that we all had was very much, I'll be a little bit tongue in cheek, was crafted in the very early days of the Industrial Revolution. You know, the whistle blows, we all go to work. The whistle blows, we all go home. 
And we still are kind of living in that. Okay, now it's trains and subways and cars and automobiles, but it's still very much that. And much like we are talking today, I think we have proven to the world that some work at least can be done quite effectively remotely. There's no need for us both to travel just to do this. We can do this using technology. Now, if I'm talking to a thousand people in a room, I'll be honest, I would still prefer to sometimes do that in person. And if I'm meeting somebody for the very first time and you're trying to see how each other behaves, I would like to do that in person. So I don't say always, but many times I think we have not done this very large social experiment and we will emerge with something that's a hybrid between the previous form and this form as opposed to anything else. So... Arvid, tell us about IBM today. Who is IBM today? Everybody knows IBM from the past. So what is IBM? What's the business made up of? And uh, then let's come on to talk about the story for the future, but just just a, a few facts and figures about who IBM is today. I think everybody thinks of IBM as the computer maker. So when we think of mainframes or maybe the IBM PC, Uh, If you look at all of that, that was the bulk of IBM in 1990. So not that far back, 30 years ago. And if I look fast forward to today, all of that comprises less than 10% of IBM. So that's a pretty big change, having gone from over 70 to less than 10. So what is IBM today? So we are primarily focused on two technologies where we believe there is massive opportunity for our clients that enable their productivity, and we'll come back to it. That's one of the reasons technology has played such a strong role during and post-COVID and during inflation and interest rates and all that. Those two technologies are hybrid cloud and artificial intelligence. We believe that this comprises a trillion-dollar market, and that's the market we want to play in. So today, 70% of IBM is comprised of consulting and software both high-growth areas around these two technologies. And that's the question of focus and deciding where we put our capital allocation, where we put our R&D, where we put our skills, where we hire to service our clients on those two dimensions. So a total trillion-dollar market, over 70% in these high-growth areas. We're not going to let go of the past, but the past will naturally shrink over time. So certainly... Other technologies like Unix, they're important. We're going to keep doing them, but they're in that 30%. They're not in the in the 70. And so that is really what IBM is about. So what about the role of, if I can call it research, you used to run the research business there. I mean, I noted that you still are one of the top patent owners in the US. I listened to a podcast recently the other day where you had designed a new, a new chip It's not that you're the chip maker, but you're designing it. So people get this sense that IBM, I think, has this incredible kind of brain power and R&D power. And is is that still an important part of the business that you're talking about very much in client terms, which, of course, is where the revenue comes from? But is innovation uh, and being an out-and-out leader in technology still an important part of IBM? It's more than important. It's essential to both the identity and how we provide value to our clients. We've made a decision. It's a conscious decision. It's not a unconscious or accidental that we are not good, I'll call it, in commodity businesses. 
So hard disk drives, memory technologies, displays, we are not the best at doing those because we tend to be a high innovation, high value, very high skills in our people is what we are. So we want to come in and help our clients then against the areas where we can innovate. And we always want to lean a little bit forward in where the world is going as opposed to where it has been. By the way, don't get me wrong. Commodities are really important. I mean, we all need food, we all need oil. These are commodities, so they're essential. But each company should do what it's good at. We are very good at doing innovation and then bringing that innovation to deploy for our clients' benefits. And so if I kind of look at the world today, we are faced with high interest rates. We are faced with inflation. There's a demographic dividend that has gone away, meaning there are fewer people with skills. We have supply chain resilience. We have an energy crisis. So when you look at that, how are you going to get through that? Because you would turn around and say, well, let's all shrink. That's not very good for the human race, to shrink every company, to shrink employment, to shrink wages. So I actually strongly push back on that. But I do believe that technology can help us get way more productive. If I look at it, I sort of talked about the Industrial Revolution. That was all about productivity. By the way, I mean, when you went to factories and looms and power looms, by the way, driven by water and then steam, it was 100 times more productive. And the return went in the end to the individual. They got a big part of the return in terms of a better quality of life. That's what all of these things give us. And so technology is going to help us do that. And we believe that innovation is what drives technology forward and makes it even more productive and even more automated. A great example is work we are doing with one of our clients, McDonald's. It's hard to get people to do order taking at the drive-throughs. And so if you can begin to use AI that is now tuned to their menu of that day and things like a Happy Meal or a package, or if you know, typically people order another item, maybe a drink or fries or milk with something else, then you can really make that experience a lot better and automated with lower errors and able to be tuned eventually for personalization. That's a way of moving forward, leveraging technology, but that takes a lot of innovation. And that is what we're all about, Charles. Yeah, so I noticed, Arvind, that you have a new, if I call it positioning, I'm not sure if that's the word you use, but you're now using this idea of create and co-create. IBM has always been well known for telling a story about the future. Just before coming on air here, we were talking about the e-business campaign back in the, I guess it was the late 90s. But you totally defined that category in a way that it left everyone else, you know, in your wake. And you owned the category there for I don't know how many years. Is Create designed to do something like that? And if so, could you just talk a little bit more about it? Absolutely. And look for our audience. I should be very careful talking to one of the world's experts on branding and positioning. And for me to then talk about it seems a little maybe out of place, but, but I'll <laughs> give it a shot. So if I look at where we are, I just said technology is critical to how the world is going to get through many of the issues it faces. But that means technology is at the heart of the business. It's not some little side thing that you park there like procurement and say, okay, 
I'll go try to squeeze a few pennies more out of it. So if technology is at the heart of how a business can scale, then a client doesn't really want to be told exactly what to do. They want to work with you to see how can the technology work to solve their problems in a way that their people own it, buy it, buy into it, et cetera. And so we felt very strongly, and maybe we are lucky, we are a B2B company, we're not doing B2C work. Our clients could be B2C, but we do B2B. We want to work with them to show how the technology can bring them an advantage. And so as we begin with that theme, and then we say, but technology is essential, it's at the heart of the business, we got to, all right, what's our role? Our role is to be a catalyst in deploying technology to make their business better. Well, a catalyst does what? It brings things together. And so that was the genesis of let's create. And that is the act of co-creation. And so we want them to sort of co-create with us. And instead of us just telling them, we go there with people, with technology, with expertise, but we want to do it together. We don't want to just be telling them. Well, as you know, I wrote a book on co-creation about 15 years ago, and I was just so I was intrigued, and I never thought that I would see IBM using that that language. It tended to come from the creative world or the consumer world, and to see a, a huge organization like IBM moving into the world of co-creation is amazing. So, are you are you using certain proprietary technologies or processes with clients there in order to really understand, you know, not only their hopes and dreams, I guess, as clients, but in many cases, your customer's customer. Do you have processes in place for that? And if so, perhaps you could talk a little bit about them, Arvid. Happy to do that. I'll only push back on one of your words. I would say not so much proprietary. That That's the wrong hmm. impression. Okay. Because okay. I would turn around and say that after Red Hat has now been part of IBM for three plus years, we may be the largest open source proponent and technologist in the world. Interesting, yeah. So if we step back and say, but do we have a methodology? Do we have a way of working that even after we leave after a year or two, there is not something the client can keep using? Absolutely. So we have sort of, I'll mention three. One, our consulting team uses a garage methodology. So a garage is the idea. You don't want to be that formal. You want to get together, you know, think of 5, 10, 20 people that get together in one physical place, hence the word garage. I'll agree and acknowledge that during the height of COVID, especially Delta, it was more virtual than always physical. But people do enjoy getting together, I find, especially for a creative or a decision-making activity. And so they work together. So you'll often have a business person, maybe a couple of business owners from a client, maybe a couple of technologists, maybe five or six technologists and a business expert from IBM. They get together and they decide how they're going to deploy technology. And as our audience will know, it's equally important to understand what is the goal, what is the one process that matters. And so you do something within a few months, typically one, two, three, that shows what the power could be of working together. Now, if that scales, the client may choose, okay, I do want to do a more formal program. It could scale up into the tens, maybe the low hundreds people. I wouldn't put it much beyond that. And you learn how to work together in that iterative, nimble way. Here's a business goal. Here is how we deploy technology. This is the advantage. Let's make sure we can meet the milestones early. 
as opposed to an old, I'll call it waterfall style, where you go for two, three years waiting for an outcome. That's one approach. A second one is, I think people don't like to be told things. They like to experience things. So even when all we're doing is maybe getting a product placed, we call it client engineering. People will go in in two, three days, show something running, maybe off a cloud site, maybe on-premise, maybe in their private data center. But to work with the client, to very quickly demonstrate the value of what we're doing, but in their environment. And so you have kind of a more consultative approach, a more technology approach. And then the last one is that a big investment in client success managers. So even after you've made a sale, after the client has agreed to deploy it, you want to leave somebody there very technical, very experienced to make sure they keep having success and they keep getting positive outcomes. As you can imagine, this is a pretty big change for someone like us where we would typically have said maybe five years ago, well, let's sign a contract first. Let's agree you're going to pay us before we show you our expertise. So I think it's very much, much more iterative and saying, look, we're showing you some value. If you like it, you'll purchase it. Let's talk a little bit about sustainability. It's an area that both you and I are heavily involved in. I mean, this is a huge question, Arvid. You can answer it any way you will. What is IBM doing for businesses in the area of sustainability? Because it's such a huge issue that we're all facing today. Look, I think that here to be authentic, we should first begin by what are we doing? And then I'll go to what we're doing for our clients. So we had signed on to the original Paris Accords, and those talked about, what, a 50% reduction by 2050. And as a business leader, and I'll acknowledge I'm not a policymaker or a politician, my view was something 30 years away is just too far. What can we do that is much more tangible? So we set out a goal, and we said by 2030, we want to consume only clean energy. And even 2030 is far away, we should get to over 60% by 2025, because we all know the last 20, 30% will be harder than the first 20, 30%. So I'm pleased to say we made a lot of progress. So we had almost a 60% already in terms of our total clean energy consumption. And this is not offsets, this is actual clean energy. And we said, okay, we may not get to 100% clean energy looking at our global footprint by 2030. Now what do we do? Because I'm saying no offsets. So then we said we want to worry about carbon sequestration and other techniques like that for the 5 to 10% that may be left. But now I'm going to talk in terms of business opportunity. Many people think this is more expensive. Actually, I assert that this is less expensive. And why do I say that? I think there is so much waste or friction, take the word you prefer, in the current world that it is very easy to find 20 to 30% efficiency. And if you do that because you're also going to clean, which could be a bit more expensive, let's say 10 to 20, but if I consume 30% less, I'm still saving 10%. So maybe because of sustainability, we now have a final onus. Let's go figure out this friction. What do I mean by this friction? Buildings where air conditioning and lights are being left on all night. Data centers where servers are running at really low utilization. Why are we not putting better techniques for heat exchange out of buildings as opposed to just massive amounts of electricity consumption. How about empty truck miles? I can go on and on about the 30% friction which we can go after, but if you are going after clean, which is likely a bit more expensive, it gives you that uh, imperative to go after it. 
So we're going to do a lot of work with our clients to help them baseline where they are. We're going to work with oil and gas companies to worry about the upstream, even well before the refinery, of cutting down on those things. We're going to invest in technologies and dashboards so that uh, doing the baselining becomes easier for our clients. And lastly, I'm also deeply excited about what quantum could do to help make a direct impact on innovation around materials and climate change. We found in our work on, um, on climate change in particular, obviously the term climate change immediately has connotations and people tend to either agree or disagree. But what we have found, and we've been working with, with both deniers and call them evangelists, the one thing they all agree on is that waste is bad. That everyone can say that waste is, no one likes waste, no matter what your view on climate is. So it's interesting you're onto something there with this, with this idea of let's improve productivity, let's take the waste out of the system. Well, plastics, I mean, we tend to make it from feedstock because recycling of plastics was considered hard. As our scientists would tell me, actually, it's not as hard as people claim it is. It's just been cheaper always to do new rather than recycle. And I think there is a very strong chance that we should be able to recycle over half of all plastics, going up towards 90% over time, as opposed to today, they eventually end up in landfills or the ocean. That just sounds wasteful as an engineer. If there is something which can be reused, you should reuse it. Absolutely. I want to ask you about globalization with Ukraine, with what's happening in China and the internet and the kind of balkanization of, of the internets around the world, with supply chain. Are we, have we seen the high watermark of globalization? Is the world starting to move back towards regionalization? And my question, wouldn't that be a shame given all the benefits we've seen from globalization over the years? What, what's your view on that, Arvid? So my view actually is that we are going to see two things, but we should always look at the actual economic advantages because in the end, I believe those will outweigh almost anything else. And we should look at actual absolute numbers, not just percentages. So what do I mean by the absolute economic advantage? Look, one of the fundamental theories of the theory of competitive advantage, I don't think goes away. Because if you stop global trade, then each country has to resort to what it can consume and produce within its own borders. And if one is not the most efficient at something, then that is just going to lead to a decline in the quality of life. And I think humans are built to improve the quality of life, not a decline. And so I would say there's a pretty big force that argues against complete isolation. So there will be global trade. Now, allowing oneself to be 100% dependent on only one player who gets monopoly power is not a good idea always. So we have to have a resilient supply chain. So I go towards, we need a resilient supply chain where there is more than one alternative for a given source. And so there is maybe a bit more diversification as opposed to the word of, uh, of isolation and sovereignty alone. Yeah. Then you get to the regionalization point. Look, there aren't enough people in many countries to do all the work. So you're going to have to go to where the people are unless we're going to go to complete open borders, which looks unlikely. So maybe there should be manufacturing. Where are there people? China? Certainly, it'll have a certain set. But I said that we shouldn't have a monopoly. So maybe Indonesia, maybe India, maybe Southeast Asia. 
you know, places where there are people, where there is decent infrastructure, where there is some level of uh, politically friendliness, I'll use those words. And so I think that there is a lot of opportunity. And I think the next decade is going to show us how this all plays out. But I would tell you, I think maybe we won't get 90% of something from one country. That's where I went to percentage. But maybe the absolute amount could even actually increase, but maybe it's only 40%. But maybe there are three sources, so it's 40, 40, 20, as opposed to 90 from one. I'm sure when we were coming up through the ranks, when you went on media training, stay away from politics. You must remember all of that. Don't ever get into politics. Well, now being the CEO of a major global organization, you can't avoid politics. You're, you're having to take stands on things. But one thing I had found in my research for this meeting is that IBM has had a stand against giving political donations. Just talk about that for a minute. It's a very interesting idea. So we believe that we should not ever donate money to a politician or to a PAC. Because the purpose of that is to, is to get access at the end of the day. And we believe that because we have employees, we do things that are good for society, we have always taken stands that are principled. We believe that we can influence policy without having to pay. And if I look at, for example, the latest CHIPS Act, we were a very strong proponent of the CHIPS Act here in the United States, including extra funding for science, We've been vocal about what federally funded R&D can bring as a benefit to society. And I think we get our access to uh, of saying, a few weeks ago, we took 60 of our executives to Washington. And amongst them, they got access to, if I remember, 28 senators, 100 congressmen who were willing to hear them out. Now, did we have maybe less of an impact because we weren't paying? I doubt it. At the end of the day, we are creating jobs, we are creating uh, healthy economies. We've been good for society for so many decades that I think we get our chance to do that. And I think more people should have confidence in that approach than just giving uh, money for access. Absolutely. I'm sure you would have many supporters following you in that line, although it is interesting. It doesn't seem as though the number of companies who have taken your stand on political donations is growing. But uh... I have one final question for you. Uh, many of our listeners are aspiring young CEOs, aspiring to be the CEO of an organization. Uh, you've been at IBM for 30 years. What, what advice would you give them? Like just, just a one or two things that if you really wanted to get to the top of a company, no matter what size, what would your guide rails be? Three quick uh, words of advice. Be curious. Uh, learn what things are around you. Don't just focus on what you have to do. The half-life of skills is what, five years, seven years? So you got to learn more and you've got to understand how the organization and the world works. Try to get a sense of that. Also, curiosity helps you because that means you always want to learn something from the person or people in front of you. Two, have grit. You know, you can go back to the stories of Alfred the Great. That is one that always sticks in my head. But grit is important because you can fail 99 times and if you succeed once, the success is what people will remember. I mean, uh, Thomas Edison is, maybe it's urban myth, but I think it's true. And his point was, well, we succeeded in the light bulb not because we succeeded the first time. We actually failed 5,999 times, but that taught us what doesn't work. It wasn't a failure. 
And lastly, you've got to find purpose in what you do. That's a word that's very common. I would generally use more meaning. You got to wake up passionate about what you want to do. So you've got to focus on what actually drives you, makes you jump out of bed in the morning wanting to go do it. It can't just be a job or a career. You actually have to feel uh, passion for it. And I would give those three pieces of advice to everybody. That's wonderful, Abid. Thank you so much for joining us today. I know we could have, we could talk for at least another 15, 20 minutes on many, many topics, but I uh, really appreciate you giving us your time. And I know our audience are going to find this chat very, very interesting. So thank you once again. My pleasure to be here with you, Charles. Outside In is hosted by Charles Travail, Executive Chairman of the Interbrand Group which includes Interbrand, the world's leading brand consultancy, and C-Space, a global customer agency. Outside In is produced by Daniel Sills. If you like what you hear, share this episode with a friend or colleague, or leave us a review wherever you listen to Outside In.